Hello, everyone. Welcome back to yet another episode of Making Waves, a series on We the Students podcast where I get the distinct pleasure to speak with an activist, a social innovator, an inspiring young leader on their efforts to better their community. Yes, that's right. In this series, I get to ask young service leaders who are committed to righting wrongs they see around them what their project is about. Each and every one of our guests have a project that they're working on, and I get to pick their brain at it. What's their inspiration? How has the project worked so far? What kind of long-term, short-term goals are we looking at? And perhaps the most important, we take these projects and set them into a broader light to discuss why these projects were needed in the first place, to discuss the rooted problem that inspired these guests to take action. In the previous episodes, we've talked about the lackluster emphasis of arts education in school systems and hyper-politicized news media for young voters. Today, we get to see another facet of societal deficiency taken head-on. Today, I get to speak with Anna Farinay of Florida on her project working with the ACLU to bring informed resources to her community on local and municipal elections, how they work, mail-in ballots, as well as some key campaigns that have serious implications for her community. So please, give a warm, warm welcome to Anna Farinay, and I hope you enjoy the newest episode of Making Waves here on We The Students Podcast. And we're here with Anna Farinay. And guys, let me just tell you here, I probably warned this statement out already. So, you know, it, it may lose a little bit its uh, luster, its shine. But trust me, guys, we have a very, very special guest here for you today. Um, <laughs> I, I, you'll be surprised how many times I say that. But it's it's just true. I mean, what, what can I say? How can I help it? I just find amazing guests to be able to talk to. And today's guest, Anna, she will be featuring her project that she's doing for her community and in in truth her entire state of Florida and I thought that this topic that we'll be talking about is extremely extremely relevant in today's climate uh, given that the November election of 2020 is right right on the horizon you know we say oh it's months away but in reality you know I know that mail-in ballot dates are like due in October or whatever and a bunch of other deadlines that, you know, the hidden deadlines that aren't just election day, a lot of those can can creep up. And um, whenever I see a project run by students that is designed to either educate people on, on their requirements for becoming, you know, registered voters, or whether it's regarding anything with voter registration and mail-in ballots, I'm just absolutely fascinated and honestly inspired because... As many of you guys know, November's election is absolutely, absolutely critical for uh, the, the future of our country. It's a pivotal moment, which is exciting to be a part of, but also <laughs> kind of nervous in that everything's at stake. But in any case, without a single further to ado, uh, I think I said that wrong, but <laughs> in, in any case, Anna, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, David. You're Way, way, way too nice. I'm just doing my civic duty to encourage people to vote and educate them about the candidates that they are voting for. Yeah. Oh, man, man. I don't know. Something about the phrase like civic duty just has so much of an inspiring connotation to it. It's just amazing. <laughs> and um, that, that reminds me, like there's this other podcast I was able to 
uh, work with in the past called Candidates that focused on providing like nonpartisan viewpoints on each of the two major candidates of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And and yeah, I mean, their mission statement was as well, civic duty. And I don't know. I don't know if this is like your feel as well, but I feel like civic duty is a very undervalued or underdeveloped trait for a lot of teens, right? Like Gen Z. Yeah, obviously. I think that people have a tough, I feel like young people just don't remember to vote or like, I I don't really know why young voters don't exist or aren't prevalent, but I think that the idea of a civic duty comes later on when you grow up and you realize how important your voting power is. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I've heard excuses, right? Oh, this doesn't affect me, which obviously, as you and I both know, it's completely false and rather dangerous to even assume that politics does not matter to you. And, you know, if in any case, I would argue that young voters are probably the most important coalition for any election, right? Local, national, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I 100% agree. I think we've seen in multiple campaigns that if people focus on the youth, they end up winning because people want the youth representing us because we're the future of this country. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that kind of speaks to my like whole point of making making waves this whole series, right? We're we're, we're trying to showcase at least the the the, the you know, y- youth, younglings, I don't know, the, my fellow colleagues and classmates <laughs> <peers>. or whatever. <laughs> yes, my peers who are, you know, doing, again, their civic duty by impacting their community, which brings me to that point. I've teased it already. It's it's time to bring it to light. So, Anna, can you give us a rundown of exactly what you're doing for your project, for your community? Yeah, for sure. So I'll be working with the American Civil Liberties Union of Florida or the ACLU of Florida. I will be making, I am making educational materials to inform potential voters about the primary or like local elections for the supervisor of elections, the county sheriff, the state's attorney. And these are all incredibly important positions because they do impact everyday life for these people, unlike, say, not nationwide elections, which have a big impact but aren't as close to home. Yes. Ooh, I totally agree with that statement because. At least for our veteran listeners out here, we uh, we recorded a very, uh, very, uh, very popular episode back in October where we spoke to a local councilman, uh, Mr. Pedrozo, who also happened to be our history teacher at school. But um, <laughs> he he mentioned right. He mentioned that he he works in local municipality and, and local government, and he says that he will never consider moving out of local government because he believes that he can enact the most change within local community right if if a community member approaches him and says hey my garage my, no my uh, uh garbage wasn't picked up this week what happened with that yeah you know, exactly. they, they they take care of everyday functions in life like the federal government yeah. and the statewide government can put down legislation and all that all that stuff that's incredibly important for communities however if it's, you're having a problem that only your local government can fix and you need to be able to reach out to your local representative Exactly. And that's and and unfortunately though despite its like importance to your daily life, it's often overlooked in the election cycle because you know, for me, I can guarantee you like 50% of my like when I was in high school, 50% of the people at my high school probably didn't know who the mayor was and for sure did not know who our superintendent was and probably 0% knew who our county supervisor was or could name anyone on the council city council like it's just well okay some people could because our our history teacher was a council member but you know you, you get you catch my drift right where 
local government, despite its importance, just simply isn't uh, isn't on the mainstream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's why it's so, and to, to quickly explain some of the importances of the positions, like you mentioned, county sheriff, you mentioned the supervisor. I mean, just to give an example, why are these so important, at least in your community? Oh, for sure. So, I so the, the two main, the two most important ones in my community. So, I live uh, near Broward County. This is, I guess, a little bit important for the context of it. But, anyways, supervisor elections—they decide how vote by mail works, uh, what the early voting sites are, where polling sites are, etc. Which is really important to allowing more access and to ensuring that everyone's ballot is actually counted. For example. The supervisor election can mandate that there be specific technology for signature matching. And signature matching is actually quite a controversial issue because poll workers are only trained for five hours before they have to match signatures from like driver's licenses or other uh, official documents to voters' ballots. And oftentimes they're miscounted. And this disproportionately affects Black and Latino communities in South Florida who are oftentimes overlooked but they're the communities that are probably most in need. And then the second big issue, which is why I talk about being from Broward County, is the county sheriff. So about two years ago, there was the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in which um, 17 kids died. It was honestly a really, really, really big tragedy and impacted my life significantly. But more so than that, there was huge backlash against the county sheriff, uh, Scott Israel, who didn't have a particularly good or effective response to the shooting, and there were also programs that Scott Israel had supportive that allowed for the school shooter, who I'm not going to name, to, um, I guess, not be red, like not have like red flags against him in the police system since he was a minor. So the community was very, very much outspoken against Scott Israel, and it brought to light for me how how much impact county sheriffs can actually have in communities. Man, I mean, that reminded me, like, I don't even know who my co- county sheriff is. So <laughs> I'm going to have to hold hold that to myself to to find out and become more educated in local government. So to to reiterate, though, you, you know, your project is mainly is, is an educational one, right? You're, yeah. you're meaning to at least showcase exactly the processes and the intricacies, right? Because ultimately, unfortunately, I would say elections despite its importance, is a rather complicated process. And with that comes a lot of like cracks that people can slip out of. So yeah, absolutely great effort here. Um, Any specific, like, can you give me any specific examples of like these, these educational resources that you're, you're preparing for for the public? Basically what I've been doing right now, we haven't decided how we're going to distribute it because we want to access communities that oftentimes don't have access to just regular educational materials. So we haven't really decided what how we're going to distribute it. But to collect the information, we've namely been interviewing all the candidates from all of the counties in Florida who are up for re-election and also submitting candidate surveys. These have been, part, have been focused on a voter suppression for the supervisor of elections and on policing for the county sheriff and the state's attorneys. So with this information, we're going to compile it. And I'm envisioning a pamphlet or a flyer or something like that. We'd also like to access different communities. So we're going to print it in English and Spanish. And then uh, we're still trying to figure out how to distribute the information. So I can't really tell you that just yet. Yeah, absolutely. Man, because one of the conundrums of local government is that, you know, yes, some people watch the local news station where a lot of the local um, campaign ads are run. 
But most people have their attention fixated on national news sources or Twitter, Instagram, places where political ads, at least local political ads, have a hard time busting through, right? Unless they have, you know, buttloads of money to spend. And, you know, that's, I think that's one of the vices and, and kind of bottlenecks for people's exposure to local government. Um, I, I wanted to quickly mention, though, it's impossible to mention your project here in local government and in ways of educating every member in your community about future local elections without mentioning your experience in what some could say, you know, the political sphere and as well as the debate sphere, right? <laughs> Would you categorize yourself as a... As someone who has always been like politically active? Um, I think so, yes. I think I've always wanted to learn more about politics since the 2016 election when politics were now affecting my personal life as a, uh, ch- like I'm, my, my parents are both immigrants uh, from Peru. So the election had some sort of impact, had, had a huge impact on how I perceived uh, the United States afterwards. But I never really, I didn't really get involved into local elections until. Um, I would say about my sophomore year where I was able to read more about policies. So in debate, which is what you're hinting at, uh, we have different research topics that are year long. So my sophomore year, it was focused on education policy and my junior year, it was focused on immigration policy. So I was very, very much excited for both of those topics and was able to figure out well, learn more about how local state and national government works and what reforms can happen on each of those different levels. So that was how I learned about politics, but how I started implementing it in my community was volunteering with organizations like the ACLU and also just keeping up with local elections and like ensuring that I'm like familiar with all of the candidates. In fact, this summer I've been working with a I was working with a candidate for the representative of my district. I was running her social media campaign. So I was able to be familiarize myself with more and more state senators and state representatives. So that's been my involvement in like local politics and also how I came to understand uh, different policies that affect communities like mine or others. Man, yeah. And, you know, I have to ask here, this has to be the most obvious subsequent question, at least for me, because with all this exposure in at least local politics and just political news in general, is that influencing your career decision or, <laughs> or, or career outlooks? Is that is that somewhere along the lines of where you're planning on looking at as you head towards college? So honestly, I I I was very much set that I want to be a lawyer. When I came in freshman year, I was like, I'm going to go to Harvard and I'm going to be a lawyer. Along that way, I did not think I'd ever end up going to Harvard, but the lawyer thing stuck. But now that I'm actually going to Harvard and all these opportunities have presented themselves, <laughs> I'm like not sure what I want to do anymore because I'm very much interested in like education policy. I've always been super attracted to that. And like my entire my entire family loves education policy. So I've always heard about it. So I'm attracted to that field. And I'm very much a believer in the whole, it just takes one teacher to change a kid's life forever. So maybe yes. I end up being a teacher and maybe I end up being a community organizer. Like I absolutely love, love, love my internship with the ACLU. It makes me so happy talking to everyone and doing work that will actually impact my community and seeing it come to life. So, and um, being a lawyer still sounds fun, but I'm not sure if that's like the only <laughs> path I want to take anymore. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I think I think your pathway actually reflects something that I've always kind of believed in. That you know, as we grow up, we 
for, for those who are like very minded of social change, they see lawyers as like the the vehicle to do that. But as they grow up, and you know, like you said, as you uh, got into Harvard and was able to see all the opportunities to enact change, you realize that you know you don't have to necessarily be a a constituent of the official you know legislative world as in being a lawyer or a politician in fact a lot of ngos and nonprofits and of course you know organizations like the aclu you know being part of those can working with them can enact the same amount of influence or even more i would say in many instances on you know on your community and stuff like that so again i think I think that's like a natural progression. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I, I think I pictured myself being a movement lawyer. And then I realized that being a movement lawyer isn't the only way I can participate in the actual movement. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I also loved how you mentioned how you love educational policy. The listeners on this podcast will know how much I absolutely rant about educational policy <laughs> here on this platform. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. You know, one teacher is all it takes. And that's what frustrates me as well. Like if teachers have so much influence on a student's life, why are we not supporting them more? It's as if we're saying like, okay, you have a tremendous responsibility to, you know, put these kids in the right direction, but we're not going to support you. Well, I mean, you saw, yeah, you, you see the national um, response to teachers going back to school, right? You have literally the department. Yeah. Like the narrative department of, uh huh. sorry, I keep interrupting. You continue. You're good. No, you're good. What I'm saying is, like, you know, you have the literal Department of Education, right, <laughs> saying to um, teachers, you know, oh, do it for the kids, do it for the kids, you know, as if teachers are somehow held in higher human standards to be perfectly altruistic and not dis and to disregard their own lives and their families. So it frustrates me, man. Yeah, I agree. Like the narrative has like changed so much from like when it was the beginning of COVID and everyone's like, Oh my God, I appreciate teachers so much. Like I've had to take care of my kids for so long and teach them things and all this stuff. But as soon as teachers are like, no, we're going to put our health over um, going back to school when clearly virtual learning isn't as maybe isn't as good as in-person learning, but it's still education. Everyone's up in arms about it. And so, so angry about it and forcing teachers to go back to school. I think it's ridiculous. I'm, I, I don't know. I'm I'm very angry about it, but in at least in my communities, it's been better because Broward County and Miami Dade County have decided to go virtual. So I'm very very proud of mm. my community for that decision. Yeah, but ah, man, it is it is tough. I mean, I think education. Well, obviously, if you're in the political sphere, you understand that any sort of I guess, in, in my opinion, at least my my opinion is that any sort of major I guess issue like inequality um um, inequality in both the economic and social standpoint generally stems from education in that if you were to like like trace every major societal issue in our country right now from mental health to um to to how they're it's so polarizing how our you know two political parties have become hyper polarized and prejudice racism every sort of like major ugly side or ugly cesspool i feel like stems from education and could be solved by education i agree like i think at least what i like focusing on is like the achievement gap between say students of color and non 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 not student white students i guess 
And so mm-hmm. um, I think that's remarkable to see how much a difference can be made, but it has to be done in the early childhood education programs, not so much later childhood education programs. So I think that work is really, really significant. And I feel like it's just not focused enough as, as enough on, on it as it should be because we're focusing a lot on policing reform and the criminal justice system, which is all incredibly, incredibly important. But we also have to realize that how have we allowed children to get to that place where there's so there's rampant discrimination from both sides of the from both sides of the political spectrum. So I think it starts with education, and that's like put more of an emphasis on that throughout our schools. Right. And I would say that the criminal system is like even more closely tied to education, right? You, you hear about the school, the prison pipeline. Yes, exactly. And in, in general, you know, obviously those those kids who, who do put find themselves in that situation, you know, middle school, high school, but in reality, their environment has compromised them at a very early age, right? And like you said, I think, yeah, early education, because I heard one thing where, oh man, I was talking to a, to a, to a math coordinator in our district, who's like who's in, who's charged to kind of oversee math curriculum mm-hmm. across the board in all districts and all grade levels, oh, not all districts, all schools and in, in our district. And, and he mentioned like third grade, third fourth grade is like the pivotal time when those teachers can either put kids on the right way or the wrong way, and then from there it becomes exponentially more difficult yeah. to to either correct them or to main, even maintain them on the right pathway. Yeah. Right. And w- when I say the right direction, it means both behaviorally, both through passion, right? You can easily dissuade a kid from thinking academia is for them or school is for them and instead think that school is against them. And every single day they come to school as a battle against school rather than them coming there is both a privilege and a right for them to be nurtured. Exactly. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I agree 100% with what you're saying. Early childhood education is so, so important. I think another issue that like I, I've always been super passionate about is hiring more teachers of color. Because there's been countless studies that show that students perform better when they have teachers that look like them, because they see themselves as a standard that they can reach. This person who has so much knowledge looks like them, and they can oh. be that person. So like, I've been working with my school pretty closely with uh, like a diversity task force. Uh, like it's like alumni student coalition who's going to talk, who's talking to the administration about all of these anti-racist policies that my school could implement. And one of our first things that we are demanding is hiring more teachers of color because I just think it's such an important issue. Like I grew up in a predominantly white uh, school, which obviously is privileged. I was able to go to a private school. However, I always felt a little uncomfortable with the fact that none of my teachers looked like me. Mm. yeah man i'm trying to think about because i'm chinese descendant Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to think about if i ever had an asian teacher okay time to think (laughs) oh yeah no no i did okay one one really wow that's that's, okay zero through kindergarten yeah okay so yeah i've had one my freshman year my ap biology teacher was mong so, so I mean, roughly the same area. Yeah, like you're reaching but, for it here. I mean, it really just should be easily accessible. Right. Yeah. Majority are white. Majority are white. Yeah. I mean, I never even thought about that because where I generally concern myself with is uh, is why students become disengaged primarily in high school. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. I'm I'm kind of operating in a sphere where kids already are a certain way, 
right, where they've had basically years, if what eight years of education that either really helped them or really beat them down. And mm-hmm. by then, it's really hard to change. But in any case, I still feel like, you know, I walk into a class where, you know, kids never raise their hand for an entire year and teachers may not even know their voice. And at the very end of the school year, when they say, okay, see a teacher or something like that, that's the first time they ever heard their voice. And that's that's the frustrating part for me. Yeah, I can't um, imagine that. Like, I mean, like, I'm sure it exists. I know it exists. I just, I, my, my <laughs> oh, school yeah. always encourage like, discussion-based classrooms. So, like, we don't really have oh, to raise man. our hands. We're all kind of just, like, talking to each other already. But that comes with, like, the advantage oh. of being a K-12 through school. We've all known each other for such a long time. It's hard not to be comfortable. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, th- I guess that presents a, uh, an argument for K-12 integrated schools. And, man, that's cool. I've never... In, at least where I've lived, I've never had observed K-12 schools. But yeah, that's definitely that's interesting, interesting. But <laughs> for sure, for <laughs> sure. Um, one thing I wanted to wrap on here about, though, is that to to jump all the way back to the theme of making waves is that a lot of the times when people want to make change in their community or, you know, in, in their nation or the world, I think they generally jump the gun. They They first try to think, okay, how do I change the world? Instead of thinking, okay, what am I passionate about? And then terraforming that into change or into impact, right? Uh, I think they fish, people fish for for impact. Yeah, and, and that's good. You know, the intention is there. But I think in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, it's better to look at what you're passionate about, what you can spend all night talking about. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, transforming that that passion into progress and change and, and for you I, I, the reason why i brought up your your debate past and your in, influence in politics i wanted to you at least your reaction on that statement on how this aclu partnership as well as about you know of course your relationship with the board and trying to the, the task force as well to integrate diversity into your district how how what's your reaction on on that thing where it starts it starts from passion and then becomes change. So I've always lived by the, like, I guess, little motto. It's like, do what you love and do it well. So early on, I identified that I love debate. Debate was a community for me. It uh, challenged me intellectually and also just brought me comfort with the amount of people that were interested in the same issues I was and also a community that was diverse. I, I found so many other women of color who I could relate to and sh- and talk to and feel like I wasn't crazy for feeling the things I was in a predominantly white school. So I, I did find what I loved. And then I got really good at it. Like, I, I hate not being humble about it, but I, I was successful. And I'm proud of that because I worked really, really hard attempting to understand the nuances of education, immigration, and most recently, arms sales policy. And then after that, after I left high school, I'm not done with debate yet. Hopefully, Harvard debate does some good for me. But I realized that... <laughs> I believe it will. <laughs> yeah, I realized that the skills I, I learned from debate, research skills and public speaking even, could be applicable to different internships. Because I didn't come into the ACLU with, or like the task force, the diversity task force at my school with the mindset that oh, I'm, I, 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 I realized that I'm learning something from these people, but I also realized that I had skills that I could better while I was working with them. So with the ACLU, research is obviously super important because I had to research the candidates' past issues, all of that stuff. 
And then, but even more importantly, the diversity task force, I researched for hours with a group of students, like days, I think weeks it took us to write the proposal uh, about why these policies are so important, have like evidence for why it's important, how we can implement these policies and all of that. So the administration couldn't have a chance to say no. I was ready with the responses to what arguments that they would make, which is that debatey sense in me, like I know what they're about to say, so I'm going to just preempt the answers already. So I think that is what I was trying to do. And I think I also realized that I may not change the country ever. I may not change the world ever, but I can change the future for someone that is like me going through a predominantly white school or some, or change or educate at least one voter on the issues that they're potentially going to vote on. So I realized that small change is just as good as large change for me right now. Yes, perfect. And honestly, that's there's no better way to end off on that because I was talking to a friend the other day about this Making Waves series. And, you know, we mentioned that, you know, a tsunami starts with, you know, just a small splish splosh, mm-hmm. you know, a bog splosh, if you, if you were to say. Um, and and that, that reiterates that point of any impact, any change, any influence is meaningful influence and, and change. So with that, I can't find a, this was probably the most uh, uh, meaningful ending I can find for 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 podcasts like this. Thank you, Anna, for coming on the, to the show. It was absolutely a pleasure talking to you. And I hope our audience feels the same way as well. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me, David. Absolutely. And to our audience here, I hope you guys learn. I, 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 you guys better have learned something new because this was a really, really um, interesting uh, episode. So <laughs> to our audience, thank you guys for joining us on another episode of Making Waves series. And we'll see you guys on the next episode of We the Students podcast.